Well, good morning. Our passage this morning is from Genesis 13. This is the account of when Abram and Lot decide to separate and part ways. So open your Bibles to Genesis 13. I struggled as I went to prepare this passage on how far to go back in Genesis to set the stage for this moment. This moment when Abram and Lot separate is just so powerful to me, and it always has been, and I've struggled to articulate it, but I'm going to try to articulate this morning what I think the Bible is saying to us. But I do have to go back a ways to set the stage for this great parting of Lot uh, and Abram. In fact, I'll go all the way back to the flood. It'll take me a while to get there. But you know, as I thought about the lead up to this moment in scripture, I go back, I flip back to what happened before, what happened before, and I get to the flood. And I'm always just struck by how strange it must have been for the generation or two that lived immediately after the great flood. What must life have been like? We know that in bringing the flood, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and he saw the corruption of man and the corruption of earth and he proposed to destroy it all and he saved Noah and his family and had them build the ark. We know the story and Genesis chapters 7 through 9 described the great flood and Noah and his family on the ark and all that occurred there. And they were experiencing this flooding of the earth for 150 days. They were probably on the ark for as, as long as a year when they finally were able to disembark and start life all over again in an empty world that had been remade by the flood and the judgment of God. They were starting all over. I can't imagine what it must have felt like. You know, remember the attacks of 9-11 on America and the way that it reshaped how we thought about our country, about history, about ourselves and our place in the world. You know, 9-11 was one of those Moments that sort of realigned how you think about the world. And if you think about the flood in those terms, it would have entirely realigned how everybody viewed themselves and God and our place in the world. Everything was different. The landscape was different. Lifespans began to dramatically shorten. Some surmise that the entire atmosphere of earth had changed and all of mankind from this point forward would live in the, under this looming shadow, this memory of the, of the great flood and the great judgment of God. God would seem so present in the world and so imminent and so real, even to those who didn't really want to follow him or acknowledge him. For everyone, their entire view of God and the world and their place in it would have been shaped by the stories handed down to them by Noah and his children about the great flood. Some people eventually would probably deny that it even happened. 
Uh, that didn't really happen. That's a myth. Or some would say, yeah, it happened, but it wasn't God's judgment. It was just a natural disaster. And they would begin to explain all the other disasters that had occurred on earth. And this one was no different. I think most people would generally have to accept the accounts handed down to them by Noah and his children. So that even those who accepted the story, though, would probably wrestle with this in different ways. Some would take solace in the fact that God said, I just never going to do it again. And he sent the sign of the rainbow as a covenant to say, don't worry, I'm not going to flood the earth again. But they might wonder, is he going to destroy the earth by some other means again? Some wouldn't recognize God's promise and the sign of the rainbow, and they would just assume that, well, if God did it once, he's going to do it again, and it could happen any day. And this uncertainty that people must have lived with, imagine the uncertainty that you would live with day to day, knowing that every day you are at the mercy of God. So no matter how you felt about the flood and whether people admitted it or not, everyone would know that this world and everything in it belongs to God and that he can do with it whatever he pleases. There'd be no mistaking that we're not in control of the future, not even of tomorrow, and that we all live within this reality that he created and that belongs to him. That sense that we are living in his world and his reality would be palpable for everyone. Well, after the account of the flood, what comes next but the account of the Tower of Babel? Chapter 11. So after the flood, God restated his command originally given to Adam and Eve to what? To multiply and fill the earth, to disperse and multiply and fill the earth. But Noah's grandson, Nimrod, had another idea. He was a mighty man. He was the founder of cities. He built many cities, many of the biblical cities we read about. One of them was Babylon. The story of the founding of the city of Babel is in Genesis 11. We see that people came together and said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And in that chapter, it talks about how they fired their bricks and, and formulated their mortar to build this permanent city and this tower up into the heavens. They wanted to build something in the post-flood world that would be permanent. A city made of bricks so strong and a tower so tall that no elements, no flood, no forces sent by God could destroy it. They were going to build their own city. God had made it clear in the great flood that this world belongs to him. And that to live here is to live in the reality that he created. But at Babel, the people came together in defiance of God to build their own world, their own city, I think what they were saying is, God, you may have your world and your reality in which you 
are the sole authority. But we are going to come together and build our own world and make our own reality in which man is the ultimate authority. By your great flood, you made your kingship and your kingdom known. But we're going to build our own kingdom where you will not be welcome. And we are going to make a name for ourselves. Well, you know what happened next. God confused their languages and forced them to disperse somewhat. But Nimrod and others continued to build these cities. And Babel eventually became the great city of Babylon. And this theme is established early in the Old Testament in, uh, uh, in which these great cities like Babylon, they, they come to represent man's rebellion against God. This is a theme starts in the Old Testament and carries into the new. Now, cities aren't always, you know, they're not inherently bad. The problem is sin. Sin is corrupting and sin is uh, destructive. And so where thousands of sinners come together, people, or hundreds of thousands or millions, and sin is concentrated there. They feel big cities enticing and they feel permanent. They can make us feel important. We can lose ourselves in the city and become invisible or anonymous. But in biblical terms, cities are where the rulers of earth take counsel together against God and against Christ to devise new ways to oppose God and new ways to assert mankind's autonomy from him. Just read Psalm 2 for more. So the great flood made people feel vulnerable and dependent on God's mercy. But by building these great cities, man creates for himself the illusion that he is strong and he is invincible and that he can define reality for himself. And again, in biblical terms, these cities of man come to represent the kingdom of man set up in opposition to the kingdom of God. And then along comes Abram. After the great flood, after the Tower of Babel, God initiated this plan to make his kingdom known and to bring his kingdom in a visible way through the nation of Israel. And he started by calling one man, the 75-year-old man named Abram. Later, he would be called Abraham. But for now, he's Abram. He lived in a big, vibrant city called Ur, U-R. I guess that's how you pronounce it. It's in what we call Iraq today. There are ruins of that city that still exist. It was a big, vibrant, by those terms, and even by some of our terms, fairly modern-seeming city. But God called him to leave that city, to leave his home and his father's household and go to the land that God would show him. Because God was going to make him a great nation. And that nation would be, become a blessing to all people. So Abram packed up his things, gathered up his family, his entire household, and set out for a land unknown. He didn't know exactly where he was going. And in his, this band with him was his nephew Lot, his wife Sarah, his household and his nephew Lot. And after a long journey, they arrived in a particular place and God told 
Abram, that you were there. This is there. That's the land of Canaan. This is the land to which I have called you. This is the land I will give to your descendants. And what did Abram do? He built an altar, called on the name of the Lord. But then there was a famine in the land immediately. And you know the story. Abram vacated. He, he went south to Egypt to escape the famine in the land that God had given him. And I hope you remember the story. He was nervous. Sarah, his wife, was very beautiful. He was nervous that the rulers in Egypt, maybe Pharaoh, would see her and kill him for her. And so he lied and said Sarah's his sister. And Pharaoh did see Sarah and did take her in. And then God put a plague on Pharaoh's house, and it was a mess. And Abram got Sarah back, and they went back to the land of Canaan again in, in some humiliation. So Abram isn't perfect by any means, but he goes back to the altar. He's rightly venerated in Scripture for his faithfulness because he set out on this journey not knowing. He answered the call of God, not knowing where he was going. And Hebrews says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he had quite literally left the kingdom of man in search of and in pursuit of the kingdom of God, even though he didn't know what tomorrow would bring for him. So at the Tower of Babel, we have mankind gathering to build his own kingdom where mankind rules. And in Abram, we see God calling him out into another kingdom, the kingdom of God. One is centered on man's false reality and one is rooted in God's immutable reality. One in which man feels in control and another in which man submits to God's will. This Old Testament theme of kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God carries forth into the New Testament. Of course, Jesus comes to announce the arrival of his kingdom in a new way. John the, Baptist is, John the Baptist announces the, the coming of the kingdom. Jesus announces that many of his teachings are about what the kingdom of God is like and what the people in the kingdom of God are like. But to me, the most prominent teaching of Jesus in this regard is, is when he said, to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, Caesar's and unto God that which is God's. Remember that? That's, you know, a statement about taxes. We always think, should we, should we pay our taxes? And Jesus says this. But what is he really saying? What he's really saying, because everyone was wondering, is he coming to vanquish Rome and the kingdoms of man and set up the kingdom of God as the Messiah? And his point was, actually, for a time, there are going to be two kingdoms coexisting. The kingdom of Caesar, which is the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of God. And his main point was, we, of course, we still have duties and obligations in the kingdom of man. But when we become Christians, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's where our primary allegiance lies. He says, render unto Caesar that which bears his image, the coin, with Caesar's face on it. And render unto God that which bears his image, yourself, your heart, your mind, 
your ultimate allegiance. Paul picks up on this theme later in the epistles. He says Christians are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus and Paul are saying that when you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ for forgiveness, for eternal life, and submit your heart and mind to him as Lord and King, that you cease to be a citizen of the kingdom of man and you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. So it's with these two kingdoms in mind, this theme of citizenship, that we approach finally chapter 13. I'm going to, I'm sorry, I could have had that slide up there for you the entire time. I'm no good with slides, you know that. We're at chapter 13 now, and I'm going to read starting in verse 1, but it's really these verses, 10 through 13, that I'm going to focus on. So I'll lead up to that, starting at Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt. Remember, he had fled to Egypt because of the famine. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. That's the southern region of Canaan. So they're coming back up from Egypt. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, there were other people in the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites as well. So there was a lot of commotion that was forming in their party in this new land. In verse 8, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, this, this is where we pick up our passage. So Abram is giving Lot his choice of which part of the land to take. We need to part ways. You choose. Now, we can spend a lot of time on why Abram gave him the choice. Was it faith in the Lord? Was it faith in God's providence? Was Abram a little bit ashamed of what he had done in Egypt and was trying to, trying to display faith at this point? It's hard to say, but it's an interesting question. But I want to focus on these next verses on Lot's fateful choice, the choice that he made when offered by Abram. Starting in verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now remember when Abram had taken his little detour down to Egypt, Lot and Lot's wife were with him. And they liked Egypt. They liked it down there. So when Lot was considering his choice, he looked to the area in the direction of this city, Zoar, because 
That area was like the land of Egypt. It was lush, like the river plains of the Nile, and it even reminded them, or Moses, the writer of this, wants you to know, it was lush like the Garden of Eden. Now, by the time Moses wrote these words in Genesis, you have to remember, this whole area was desolate. Because later in Genesis, God would rain fire and brimstone down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in this area and devastate the entire area, and it was barren. So what he's saying, he wants the reader to know this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Back then, this land was lush here in the river valley, and it was speckled with cities just like the Nile in Egypt. In verse 11, it continues, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Now, I haven't mentioned this, but up until this point, every movement of people in the Bible that's referenced expressly is to the east. You remember Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden east of Eden. Nimrod and the people after the flood, what did they do? They migrated east into the plains of Shinar, where they proposed to build the Tower of Babel. And there are other references to eastward movements of man. It was only when God called Abram from Ur that he traveled west against the flow, against the flow of humanity. Abram moved back west. Now, Lot is looking again toward Sodom, toward the east, with the tide, moving with the tide of men. In verse 12, it continues, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, even if you don't read the Bible, you know something about the city of Sodom and the, its sister city, Gomorrah. They've become synonymous with sin, particularly sexual sin, sexual perversion, and an absolute contempt for God's authority. Now, we can't read Lot's mind here in these verses, but we can follow Lot's progress in Scripture after this. So here, he quickly settled among the cities and soon was pitching his tent near Sodom. By chapter 14, we read he was dwelling in Sodom. By chapter 19, he was sitting at the gate in Sodom, which means he had a position of prominence there. And later in chapter 19, it indicates he may have been a judge in the city of, so of Sodom. So a ruler of some sort. And we know that Lot's wife pined and yearned in her heart for the city of Sodom. You probably remember, if you've read through these verses, that when God eventually destroys Sodom, he sent in two angels to warn Lot and his family. The angels found a way for them to escape, but they said, look, as you leave, don't look back. But what did Lot's wife do? As she's being ushered out of the city by the angels of God, and God is raining down fire and destruction upon her beloved city. 
She just had to look back at the city she loved. And God struck her and turned her into a pillar of salt. So this little reference here in our verse 12 does give us a hint in in all this context of what was going on in Lot's heart and mind. He and his wife were pining for the city, even a wicked city. And this pining, it might have been the root of the dispute from the very beginning with Abram. So this is the contrast that sets the background for our lessons this morning. Abram is the sojourner in the land, the man of the tent, determined to live in pursuit of the kingdom of God. Lot started out with Abram, but his heart and mind are conflicted because he's yearning for citizenship in the kingdom of man. So here's our two lessons this morning. I want us to understand and resist the temptation to dual citizenship. And I want us to count the cost of this so-called dual citizenship. First, understanding and resisting the temptation to dual citizenship. You know, life with Abram was certainly hard. As we discussed, he's set out on this journey, not sure where he's going, not sure when they're going to arrive. They're tenting, they're nomadic, they're wandering in the land. I think it's fair to assume that when Lot left on this journey with Abram, Abram was packing up back in Ur and said, hey, Lot, I want you to come with me and let me tell you what God said. Great nation, blessing to the world, kingdoms coming. I'm, I would suspect that Lot assumed they were going to go on this journey and when they arrived that things were going to start to happen. But they didn't happen that quickly. They were just sojourning and tenting and didn't know what God's plan was. It was taking a long time And the sojourning and tenting was probably getting old. Probably getting frustrating for Lot and his wife. So when Abram gave Lot this choice, I don't think Lot struggled very much. He jumped at the opportunity to get on with his life. To be done with the tents. And he set his heart and mind and his feet toward the city. Now, what makes this interesting to me, one of the things, is that Lot wasn't an open rebellion against God or Abram. He wasn't throwing, hurling insults, you know. He wasn't an open rebellion against God or God's mission. He just wanted both to be on mission with Abram and to live in the city. That's what he wanted. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, he wanted both. All of us are faced in our lives with this same tension. Will I trust the promises of God even when I can't see where it's leading, where it's taking me? Or will I settle into the kingdom of man and make my home there and try to have it both ways? 
You know, in today's world, Christianity is often presented to people as an, a life add-on. So you have your life, you have your identity, you have your preferences, you have your desires, and you can add on Christ to help you get all those things. But that's sort of how Christianity is presented in much of the world today. It's an add-on. So you can remain a citizen of the kingdom of man and you can add on Christ, add on Christianity to help you get the things that you want. But the Bible never presents Christianity as an add-on. It's a whole new beginning. It's a new birth. You're a new creation and it's a full transfer of citizenship from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. One of the greatest temptations is to believe we can have both, but we need to understand that this is a great deception. There's no such thing as Christianity without sacrifice, Christ without choice. You can't serve God and mammon, God and material things. You can't be a friend of the world and not be at enmity with God. You can't be a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness. You can't be a dual citizen. Paul urges the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You know, the way of Christ appears unbearably uncertain. Where is he leading me? Where is he going to set out my path for me? It's unbearably uncertain at times. And so in our flesh, we're terrified to let go of the kingdom of man and step out into the unknown, into the kingdom of God. This fear is felt both at the moment of conversion and by believers on an ongoing basis. We want to return to Egypt. We want to return to the kingdom of man sometimes. Jesus is aware and he wants us to know that what seems like a great sacrifice in giving up your citizenship is actually the greatest blessing ever. In Mark, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We think we're hanging on to our lives by clinging to the kingdom of man, but we're losing it. And when we let go, we gain Christ and the gospel. In Matthew 11, Jesus calls us into his kingdom. You know these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, we have to trust the words of Jesus and resist the temptation to pursue dual citizenship. Now, one way to resist that temptation is to remind ourselves of the great cost of seeking this so-called dual citizenship. 
Now, we have to understand, it could be that Lot had experienced saving faith at some point in his life. In 2 Peter 2, Peter makes a reference, kind of an offhand reference, to how God rescued righteous Lot from Sodom and how Lot had been tortured in his soul with all of the ungodliness of Sodom. So people debate about Lot's ultimate uh, position with God, but let's assume that Peter meant to say that Lot was saved at some point. He still represents a serious warning to believers, doesn't he? Like Lot, we think we can manage our sin and we know where the line is. But let's look at how it worked out for Lot. We already talked about the fate of his wife, who he took with him into the city of man, into Sodom, indulging her desires What about the rest of his family? Well, they were exposed to unspeakable perversion and ungodliness. Remember when God sent those two angels to warn Lot and his family about the coming destruction? Well, Lot invited them into his home. And we read in chapter 19 of Genesis that the wicked men of the city came banging on the doors because they wanted to sodomize Lot's guests. They surrounded his house, they tried to break the door down, and they threatened to rape Lot if he didn't hand them over. And then the angels struck the mob with blindness, and we read that they continued to claw at his door. And then what did Lot do? He offered them his virgin daughters instead to protect his guests. Lot had to be rescued from Sodom. He was kind of a problem for Abram. He had to be rescued from there twice, once by these angels and then once before that by Abram because of a war that had broke out. And when we last see Lot after his wife has gone and Sodom is destroyed, do you remember where we last find Lot? We find him intoxicated living in a cave, and his daughters have gotten him drunk in order to sleep with him and bear children for him so that he might have a lineage. This is the fruit, this is the result of their lives growing up in Sodom. So at the very best, we can say, you know, it's difficult to find fruit from Lot's life. And he sort of joins the company, doesn't he, of Nicodemus and the rich young ruler and the parable of the soils. You know, you're just not sure, except for this statement by Peter, you're not sure where Lot is. That's not a good place to be. The lesson for the believer is sometimes we say, you know, I'm a believer, so I'm safe. I can go into sin and I can manage it and I'll be fine. But we need to understand that's a rationalization. When we do that, we risk rendering ourselves useless in the building of God's kingdom. We take ourselves out of the game. This cost of attempting dual citizenship is high. And it can have serious consequences for you and often for those around you. 
So we must understand and resist the temptation to pursue dual citizenship and we must remind ourselves of the cost of seeking it. I want to conclude by telling a personal story. Many years ago, Kristen and I invited a couple over for dinner. Uh, I can't remember her name, but his name, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just call him Rob. So we invited Rob and his wife over for dinner. Kristen had gone to college with Rob. They had been philosophy majors together, so they had deep conversations. They were close friends and had, they were both deep thinkers and searching for meaning in life. And so they were, they were close friends at that time. And Rob remained a close friend, and I got to know Rob over the years. And when Rob got engaged, we invited them over for dinner. We were young marrieds at the time, no kids, all of us, just getting started. He was a lawyer in Atlanta. We were lawyers in Atlanta, just starting to build our lives. And we had them over to our apartment for dinner. They were unbelievers. But because of Kristen's relationship with Rob and the closeness of that friendship, Rob had respect for us and he would listen to us as we witnessed to him. And we chose this evening to witness to them. And they were game for it, and Rob was game for it. And it was one of those incredible evenings where we got to say everything we would have ever wanted to say to an unbelieving friend. We explained how after Adam and Eve sinned, all of mankind was cursed with sin so that we're all born into this sinful race. And we got to explain that even though we feel righteous and good and we feel like our intentions are pure, they're actually not. We got to use our favorite analogies, you know, like a fish in water doesn't know it's wet. We don't realize how sinful and prideful and selfish we are. And we don't consider what a great offense it is to ignore our creator and to ignore his purpose for our lives. We got to explain God's plan of salvation and how he founded the nation of Israel from which he would bring forth his son, our savior, not just for Israel, but for everyone who would believe and trust in him. And we explained that Jesus lived a perfect life and then willingly went to the cross to die for sinners so that he could pay the penalty of our sin and forgive our sins and then also assign to us his righteousness so that we could be considered righteous, making us children of Abraham and heirs with Christ in the kingdom of heaven. We explain that Jesus offers this inheritance of heaven as a free gift of mercy to sinners who can't earn it and to whom nothing is owed and who can't deserve it. And we explain to Rob that if he would bend his knee and confess his sin and submit his heart and mind to Christ as his Savior and Lord, that he would be saved into the kingdom of God. And Rob listened, and he asked questions, 
And I'll never forget what he said at the end of the evening. And I don't remember his exact words, but I remember the exact point. He said, I hear what you're saying, and it makes a certain sense. And I can see how it holds together, and I can see why you would believe it, and I can see that you believe it, and that it's important, and that it's changing your lives. But my problem is, if I accept this gospel as you have laid it out for me, then I would have to change my entire life. And I am not willing to do that. He said it. I'll never forget it. It was so powerful because he understood the decision that was before him. He had surmised from our gospel presentation that if he were to accept the gospel in full, he couldn't have it both ways. He couldn't keep control. He couldn't dictate his future and build it the way he wanted to build it necessarily. He would have to give it to the Lord. And he wouldn't be able to have it both ways. He would have to renounce his citizenship in the kingdom of man and step into the kingdom of God. Rob couldn't let go. He couldn't let go of the kingdom of man. I wish he could have embraced these words of Paul. You know, Paul was describing his young, privileged, up-and-coming life to the Philippians before Christ. He was an important man with goals and dreams and a future. But Paul traded that life for the kingdom of God, and he told the Philippians, you know, whatever gain I previously had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul wanted them to know, and he wants us to know, that when you choose the kingdom of God, what feels like a great sacrifice, and to a sinner like a painful loss, is actually an immeasurable and eternal gain. Well, how about you this morning? Where is your citizenship? Or maybe more importantly, to which kingdom is your heart inclined? Which direction are your feet pointing? Let's learn the lesson from Lot's fateful choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Give your life to God. Give your hopes to him. Give your future to him. For he alone is worthy. Let us pray. O Lord, forgive us when we set our hearts on the kingdom of man. Set our hearts instead on your kingdom. Grant that we might join with your servant Abraham and learn to live as mere sojourners and ambassadors to the kingdom of man, but as fully devoted and trusting citizens of the kingdom you are building for your son 
and for your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.